0: I'm Edric and I'm the filmmaker.
1: And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate.
0: And this is our podcast. We have a podcast, Leilani, and this is season four. Incredible. Yeah, and season four kicked off with the amazing Peter S. Goodman from New York Times. Uh, I think, Leilani, it's so cool to have a New York Times global economic correspondent in our, our podcast and who is on the same page. Been looking into the same stories that we've been looking into in our work. So it's, it's really cool. And, and that's why we decided to, to bring Peter on for a second half where he will be talking much more about the pandemic, how the most powerful used the pandemic to be even more, even richer and even greedier. Exactly. And you people out there, you should actually go and buy Peter S. Goodman's book. And the title is Leilani? <laughs>
1: the title is. Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. You
0: can order it online, but remember that one of the crooks in the book is Jeff Bezos from Amazon. So don't buy the book on Amazon. Go to support your local bookshop. I think that's that's how we should do. And so so also bookshops can survive and, and do better. Exactly.
1: So, Frederick, what are you up to?
0: Well, I'm I'm working on a new film, uh, but I can't tell you so much about it now, because it's secret. Secret. <laughs> but um, Push, that old movie is <laughs> is still is still being shown around. And actually, as we told, told you last week, the, the, all the COVID restrictions are now lifted in this, the Nordic countries, and. I'm go- in March, I'm going to Mexico because we're going to have the Mexican theatrical release of Push, not only in Mexico City but also the cities around the, the country. And so I'm, I'm soon into a talk with my distributor and our press agent in Mexico. So, you, Leilani, and you listeners, if you have friends in Mexico that you want to know about screenings in Mexico, tell them and send them the information. And and, uh, if they want to organize screening, it's a very good window to do it when we also have some attention in Mexico. And why, Leyland? do you think people want to see push in Mexico two years after the premiere? Well,
1: financialization is becoming quite an issue in Mexico, not just in Mexico City, actually. I mean, it is obviously a touristed country, so you can expect a certain amount of financialization from that, but it's gone much beyond that. In fact, a group of young... Journalists and researchers have pulled together uh, a very interesting report. So maybe we should have them on pushback talks in time for the Mexican release of
0: Push. I think we must do that. So that's cool. So, so I mean, it's cool. You're. I don't. Will you come to Mexico? It would be cool if you could. But if you can't. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna you, try. But I don't you know. You will be there. You will be there anyway. In spirit. You will <laughs> fly over. On the screens. You <laughs> will be on the screens and, and the very big screens. That's so. Welcome, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk about the pandemic. The pandemic, of course, in, in PUSH, we talk a lot about uh, the global financial crisis, the effect and what it led to, like, a new global landlord coming up. So uh, the financialization of housing, which is it's something that happened a few years after the big crisis. So uh, Blackstone entered in 2012. So we have been in in this podcast, we always, we started in the pandemic and we said, this is a new moment in history, and now we should all look out. We should learn from the financial crisis because the Obama government kind of sent out, kind of promoted Blackstone in some ways. But now there is a new historic moment. So, what is happening now? Are the governments doing it better now?
2: Uh, you mean in terms of in terms of the pandemic?
0: Or in terms of. Uh, not letting even more power over to the already richest people on the planet?
2: Uh, You know, some good has come of the pandemic uh, in that, you know, in Europe in particular, there's been a step back from these crippling policies of austerity. Uh, that have been uh, really uh, just brutal for ordinary people in in, in many countries. Uh, the European Union has you know softened its its budget rules and it's allowed countries in in crisis to exceed the the usual debt targets. Though you know none of that's permanent, uh, and eventually we'll probably be back to a place where austerity rules. In the states, you know Biden comes in and has all sorts of important proposals on taxation, at some point flirts with a wealth tax, though he's actually generally not favored a wealth tax. I argue in the book a wealth tax is absolutely you know, vital because, you know, take Jeff Bezos, who if we're just taxing income, which is what we do, is gonna end up paying a lot less uh, a share of his income than the people who are scrubbing his toilet, right? I mean, he's, he's a guy who, who makes $83,000 a year on paper That's his salary at Amazon. Uh, That's about what a public school teacher in California makes. Well, you know the reality, of course, is he's worth $200 billion because he's paid in stock. And we don't tax stock unless it's sold. And even then, we pay it at much lower rates than most people pay income taxes because that's called the capital gains. So Biden comes in. He wants to fund uh, a much more expansive social safety net, which is something that we really need in the United States. And he wants to pay for it by increasing uh, corporate taxes, back to a sort of middle level between where Trump lowered them and where they've historically been. And, uh, and he, he wants to, to tax wealthy people. These go absolutely nowhere. We have gotten nothing in the United States. Uh, and, and it's a similar picture. I mean, in, in the UK, there's a conversation about increasing corporate taxes that seems, seems healthy. Uh, but by and large, the pandemic has uh, enhanced the inequalities of that have been there all along. And and the biggest, uh, most profound failure, I think, uh, we have to look at a vaccine distribution policy, right, where classic, you know, Davos band construction, like we can either have the status quo, we're a handful of well-connected pharmaceutical companies, vacuum up all the profits uh, and monopolize the fruits of publicly financed research uh, while creating more billionaires in pharma, or we get no vaccines at all. Uh, And and so what we've got is a situation where Pfizer and Moderna, thank goodness that they gave us these miraculous COVID vaccines. They've done an enormous amount uh, of of good. Uh, But we are living in a world where large numbers of people in places like Africa, South Asia, continue to be unprotected. Even frontline medical workers are unprotected while we're giving booster shots to children in the United States. And the result of that is not only the predictable humanitarian catastrophe of literally hundreds of millions of people still being in harm's way, but even if you're just selfishly wanting to resume your life in New York or Los Angeles or Toronto or wherever, we've got the Omicron variant. How did we get the Omicron variant? We got it because... Despite epidemiologists warning us, if we don't vaccinate everybody, it's an open invitation for variants to take, take root and spread. Well, here we are. We are effectively, in the United States, subsidizing the monopoly royalties of pharmaceutical companies that have a huge and powerful lobby, the pharma lobby. Uh, and we're subsidizing them through shuttered schools and the disrupted educations of young people, continued fear, death, overwhelmed hospitals, nurses and doctors stuck in harm's way, threats to livelihood. That's like the way we're paying the freight for pharmaceutical companies to perpetuate a status quo in which most of humanity is unprotected. So that's, you know, if you're looking for signs that our system is, uh, learning some lessons and is able to meet the basic needs of human beings on earth. The pandemic's a pretty big test and we've failed.
0: And yeah, because these companies don't even pay taxes. Even I mean, we have this uh, amazing American Italian economist, Mariana Mazzucato. She is pointing out exactly what you say here, that a lot of the inventions that are used in medicine or technology are actually state funded or publicly funded. But then they send very little back to society in, in taxes because they, they don't see themselves as a part of any country. They see them as a global, a global tribe that is flying every, over everything with a lot of different passports in their pockets.
2: And, so. and they tell you a variant of the cosmic lie, right? Which is if you regulate them, if you force them to pay taxes, if you threaten their monopoly on their intellectual property, then uh, we'll all die. Like, you know, Davos man gets paid or or we all die. We won't have any innovation. I mean, we heard all these arguments uh, surrounding uh, AIDS drugs, you know, in the in the 90s. And boy, you know, these companies have made plenty of money even after they were forced to share their intellectual property. I mean, n- none of the pharma executives are sleeping under overpasses.
0: <laughs> Leilani, you've seen a lot of people yeah. sleeping on overpasses.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too many people. Um I think in your book, the, the, the stuff about Pfizer and Pfizer, you know, overcharging governments, I mean, overcharging, it's just not even the right word. I mean, just extracting so much wealth from these vaccines. And, and the scene you portray, which was news to me, about them pressuring the U.S. government to roll out boosters when the science wasn't there yet that boosters would be useful, for me, it keeps coming back to their incredible political power and their power to change the world, really. I mean, pushing for boosters when, when the science wasn't there. Now, maybe they were right in the end, and right. maybe boosters have been useful. But the, the fact that they can change the course right. of medical practice, the fact that they can go to governments and basically pillage from a social welfare state and benefit from a social welfare state, I think is so shocking. I'm wondering, and Frederick, I hope you don't mind, but I, I, I don't normally ask the questions, but <laughs> one of the big news stories for me, and I think Frederick as well, was that Blackstone is actually quite involved in the healthcare industry in the US and maybe you I was just Oh going you were going there, going there. Team okay. Health Team There we go no, it's go great. for it
0: it's great no i mean i never heard about the company Team Health how do how do No not at all So Peter what is Team Health
2: Team Health is one of the two largest emergency room staffing companies in the United States It's a company that sends doctors nurses other medical professionals into emergency rooms, uh, along with another uh, company that's owned by another private equity company. Uh, they, they essentially control one-third of all the staff inside American emergency rooms. Blackstone bought Team Health back in 2016 for about $6 billion, and uh, they've been accused of participating in this thing called surprise billing, Uh, This is a surprise not of the happy variety. This is like you show up at your hospital thinking that you're covered, by your normal uh, medical insurance policy. Now, medical insurance to non-Americans is, you know, bewildering and bizarre to try to explain because no one would have (laughs) ever developed a healthcare system like we have in the U.S. But you're dealing with generally a private insurance company, unless you're dealing with the government insurance uh, for older people, Medicare, or for lower income people, Medicaid. And uh, people show up and they sign the paperwork needed to go get care in the emergency room. And then uh, a few weeks later, they start hearing from collection agents when they get these extraordinary bills for, you know, four, five, eight times as much as Medicare, which is the government program, would ever have charged them. Uh, And I discovered that uh, Team Health in particular pioneered this strategy of uh, actually paying their doctors based on the amount of revenue they derive from patients which is a direct inducement to order up potentially unnecessary tests i mean essentially blackstone and the, the other investors who've piled into american healthcare in the run up to the pandemic have turned healthcare into a business that's really not all that different from you know an airline or a fast food chain like the customer The patient is the customer. You want to maximize revenue. The people working in the hospitals are costs to be reduced as much as possible, so you can jack up margins. And one of the ways you do that is reduce inventory. So, you know, your airline wants every seat taken so they can charge more for the seats. Well, your your healthcare investor like Blackstone wants hospitals full so you can uh, demand more for procedures for hospital beds. This is why the United States, and the United States is not alone. I mean, I detail this in the book, this same story plays out in Italy, in Sweden. Uh, the U.S. loses a third of its hospital beds in the 20 years running up to the pandemic. The U.S. turns more and more to just-in-time inventory management for tests, for for protective gear. And so this is why the pandemic uh, deals uh, the the healthcare system uh, just a tragic blow. Now the pandemic would have overwhelmed many a system, but you know I talked to this uh, I talked to people who told me the story of Ming Lin, uh, who's an emergency room doctor who had worked uh, near a hospital uh, at a hospital near the World Trade Center in New York uh, during nine eleven. So he's now working at the time uh, of this story in Bellingham, Washington, north of Seattle. He's working in an emergency room. He's actually an employee of Team Health, the Blackstone Company. And early in the pandemic, he starts asking some pertinent questions. Starts asking the hospital administrators, how come the people uh, greeting patients aren't wearing masks? Why do we have no triage system for people showing symptoms of COVID? Hey, why are we continuing to allow people to come in for elective surgeries, elective procedures at a time when we should be worrying about the spread of COVID? And what he's told again and again is hey, the people coming in for elective surgeries, that's our bread and butter. You know, we make money off of that. We don't want to frighten them with face masks. We don't want to hassle patients. We don't want inconvenience. And let, Let's just sort of, you know, get through this and sweep it under the rug. When he complains to his supervisors, he's told, listen, the client, the hospitals our client. We can't alienate them. What they say goes. He eventually goes public. He goes to Facebook and starts essentially blowing the whistle that his employer is complicit in making the entire American healthcare system vulnerable. And he's fired. Now, Blackstone says he's not fired. You know, they offered to put him somewhere else. Yeah, you know, there's always a story, right? Like this guy's got a family. He's got kids in school in Bellingham, Washington. He's not just going to up and move somewhere else. Moreover, why are they moving him? I mean, this, this guy's valued uh, by his, his, his colleagues. He's been there for more than 10 years. And, you know, his supervisor actually says, you know, you've embarrassed the company. You've damaged our relationship with the hospital. This guy's a whistleblower who should be celebrated as a hero and get in the structure that we've accepted, created by Davos, man, where healthcare is now a business. No, he's, you know, a malcontent who's jeopardizing the business model.
1: You are listening to Pushback Talks. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Want to support the podcast further? Become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. For more information on the right to housing and push the film, visit maketheshift.org. It's
0: scary, Leilani. That part of the book was a lot of things that I would never heard about. It's interesting that you also look into Italy, which is then a more traditional european economy but also italy has been and also my own country sweden has been adopting a part of this um, business reality in healthcare
2: i mean sweden is a special tragedy uh i mean italy briefly uh the province of Lombardy, which is the wealthiest part of Italy, right? This is where Milan is, high-end manufacturers. I mean, these are truly wealthy, comfortable people who have made money over centuries by uh, making things the rest of the world wants. And Milan, of course, is the financial center. And the pandemic just overwhelms this healthcare system because it turns out in the quarter century before the pandemic, Lombardi embraces this notion that privatization will make us more efficient, and so the result is uh, lombardy has got all kinds of world-class facilities for uh, for uh, 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 heart surgery. Uh, that's a big one. A uh, cancer. You know, they're they're just world-class, and yet they don't have any basic healthcare providers. So I talked to a woman who had just taken over a practice from a retiring uh, general practitioner, and she's dealing with COVID. She doesn't even have time to call her patients at the end of the day. There's so many cases, there's no monitoring. You know, you have a system where formerly a, a truly national or provincial level healthcare system has a bunch of institutions that can talk to one another. Well, now there's all these contractors at the table. I talked to a woman named Kiara Lapora, Who's a doctor with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, and this is a woman who's you know spent her life in Afghanistan, Yemen, Cambodia, you know conflict zones, and she's shocked to discover that her own country, Lombardy, is now a conflict zone, and she and a bunch of her MSF colleagues set up a unit in a hospital uh, in a in a place called Lodi where you know she discovers that she can't even set up a system where they can control who's coming in and out of the hospital because there's so many private contractors handling the bed linens, handling the delivery of the meals, and they're all saying, well, we'll be in breach of contract if we don't show up according to our schedule. So the pandemic's you know spreading there, uh, and there, there simply aren't enough facilities. And also Italy listened to the McKinsey's of the world and shut down hospital rooms in, in, in the name of greater efficiency. Sweden... Is the most tragic case of of all, uh, if you ask me, because you know here's a, a formerly world class. I mean, it's still a, a world class uh, medical system, but they they have uh, essentially downgraded it in order to finance tax cuts to prevent you know, the next Ingomar Comprod the, the founder of Ikea, who famously, you know, leaves to get out from under the high taxation that's required to finance Sweden's, you know, really generous social safety net. They reduce taxation of wealthy people that goes along with some privatization of senior services, a diminution of senior services and hospital services. So when the pandemic comes in, aided by a kind of crackpot uh, state epidemiologist who decides, that, you know, Sweden's going to buck the trend of lockdowns and is going to let people wander around freely without wearing we, face masks. We, we love him. So, so we, we love the crackpot uh, so, yeah So, th- <laughs> you know, that allows the virus to spread. But what then happens is, I mean, I spoke to uh, people who, uh, doctors who treat normally treat patients in senior homes who told me flat out, that there were directives in Stockholm. You know, if you're living in a senior center where this thing spread like wildfire, uh, and you have COVID symptoms, you will de facto. This is the word that doctors use. These are not my words. You will be euthanized. You know, they will put you on a morphine drip. Uh, they will cut fluids. And it's lights out. They're not taking you to a hospital because they understood. And I spoke to people in hospitals who told me the same thing. We just don't have enough capacity to deal with this. Uh, We don't have enough ventilators. We don't have enough beds. And we're going to have to make some decisions about who's going to live and who's going to die. So if you're in a senior home and uh, and you've got symptoms, we're not bringing you to a hospital. We're not even going to check you out in many cases. We're just going to Going to say that's it for you. And meanwhile, I spoke to nurses inside these privatized uh, senior homes who have no masks, who have no instructions, who have been—you know—their jobs have been downgraded over decades based on these tax cuts and cuts to social and they services. Are not They're not full-time
1: so they are staff. They're not full-time staff.
2: I mean, it was—it no. was a horror show in yeah. Sweden. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so, played out played out very similarly in Canada, sadly, in terms of the long-term care homes and precisely because long-term care homes in Canada have been financialized so the private long-term care homes work exactly as you described not enough equipment not enough staff temporary staff um, no PPE the protective gear for folks working there I mean and meanwhile
0: the billionaires have doubled their wealth right Yep. that's that's the story in your book and that's the story of this of this podcast and so peter and leilani it's kind of a depressing story so where where's the light i mean i my film i would say the light lies in understanding things and getting a language to talk about things and so, so in some way the light lies also in in new york times correspondent writing this book because I, I can feel you that you're kind of angry.
2: <laughs> yeah. You, you know, I, I appreciate your saying that, actually, because uh, I think the light lies in us waking up as a society to what's been done to our democratic institutions. And, you know, a lot, a lot of people read my stories. You know, I wrote a story about what happened in senior care homes in, in Sweden or the privatization in Italy. Oh, that's so sad. It's, I just feel so sad. Of course it's sad. I mean, it's a heartbreak that, you know, I spoke to a woman who's who lost both of her parents in the same care home in Stockholm. She wasn't even, even able to say goodbye, you know, to her, to her mother. She could see it happening. And she was, yes, it's sad. But more than sad, it's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous that the world's wealthiest people have used this pandemic to profiteer to add to their wealth while they're actually telling us that they're saving us and even telling us as mark, back to mark benioff who you know i i find particularly interesting the ceo of salesforce who goes on television in april of 2020 and says well you know the thing about the virus is we're all one you know it's unified us as, as one humanity uniquely vulnerable to this, uh, this coronavirus. And, you know, he says it's erased the illusion of our borders. By the way, I heard from a Salesforce employee the other day who pointed out that Salesforce actually does a lot of business with uh, ICE, the part of Homeland Security that defends the not illusory border. Uh, And Benioff, of course, is giving us this whole kumbaya magic carpet ride to one humanity speech from I can't remember if it was his $28 million uh, home overlooking San Francisco Bay or his uh, oceanfront home on the big island of Hawaii or maybe on a sailboat where he tweets pictures of himself with Lars Ulrich, (laughs) the drummer for Metallica. You know, I mean, the idea that we're all one is belied by the simplest observation about who's delivering the packages, who's emptying the bedpans, who has to go work in a slaughterhouse, who works in an Amazon slaughterhouse where they have to choose between eviction if they, if they lose their paycheck or putting themselves in harm's way. So I think outrage is part of our solution here. Uh, I mean, it is not going to be easy to take on the apparatus that is Davos man to reclaim our democracies and overcome the money that Davos Man is capable of, you know, of. and Davos Man has just unbelievable resources. I mean, Amazon actually released a bunch of, they produced themselves, a bunch of television spots depicting all of the wonderful ways they were protecting their warehouse employees with interviews with happy warehouse workers. And they sent these out to American television stations that aired them as their own segments. You know, I mean, the apparatus is formidable. But we've been here before. you know. We, we stared down the robber barons in the 1920s. Uh, after the Great Depression, we got the New Deal in the U.S. We got a tremendous social safety net in the U.K. Uh, the Nordic model has been built up over years. I mean, we have a template where you can take on monopolists with antitrust enforcement. You can build up the power of labor. And and by the way, you know, stakeholder capitalism, yeah, they talk about labor, but they don't talk about labor unions. And you have to, you have to increase the power of labor unions. And if we can do those things, if we can bring back progressive taxation, antitrust enforcement, and and, and it's absolutely vital that we boost labor power so labor can bargain for its piece of the action, we could solve an awful lot of problems. Again, that's a simple prescription, not at all simple in terms of execution, but that's what we got to do.
0: And the human rights uh, <laughs> perspective, Imperative. yeah. yeah. Well,
1: first of all, I want to say about the light, the book. I mean, there were moments, actually, Peter, when I cried um, in your book. Obviously, it's the human stories for me that are the most moving. Um, you know, when I start thinking about people losing jobs and telling their kids they're not going to college and that kind of stuff, it's uh, heartbreaking. Uh, But I also laughed my head off. You have a very sharp wit. Thank you. And so there is light in this book because it's the absurdity, it's the outrage that you bring to light and and you do make the reader laugh, at least this reader. Oh, thank you. Um, In terms of, you know, how do we bring this down, reconstruct, you know, I liked the, there was a sort of pragmatism at the end where you're like, you know what, we have the tools, we have them. We have to harness them. We have to believe in them. We have to maybe reinvent them for this century and, you know, et cetera. And and I think I'm with you on that. I'm actually, as um, listeners will know and Frederick knows, I'm about to release a set of what I'm calling, in a very unsexy way at the moment, uh, human rights directives on the financialization Mm -hmm. of housing. So a kind of, you know, here are the actors, here are the instruments, Here's how it's all unfolding and here's what we've got to do. Very practical, but using human rights. A lot of what I'm talking about is tax reform. Right. Better legislation to protect, in this case, tenants. It could be workers, right. you know? So and I and I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a lot that can actually be done fairly easily if we can get governments to actually re engage, to pivot. I mean, governments right now are beholden to Davos man, they're beholden. They're in bed with them. They're facilitating. They work with them. They're chummy. They're friends, et cetera. And so we need governments to pivot back to people, I think, and to take seriously human well-being. I actually thought the pandemic was going to be the time, mm. and as you say, we've failed so far. It's a failure. It's a huge failure. It was worse than a failure, actually, um, in some ways.
2: Um, I mean, it's but a st-
1: But you know, it's a tragedy. It is. Yeah.
2: But it's brought. It's brought some images that we need to have you know into stark relief i mean i mean back to the climate change metaphor this isn't like hey look at the model you know look what's happened to a half centimeter you know a, a, a half a degree celsius increase no this is like hey there's floods folks like we're watching people in boats you know hanging on for dear life and you know maybe that will let's hope that that will at least catalyze a serious conversation about how we got here and where we need to go Yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: let's let's keep this this um, debate going and and let's keep talking to each other. We actually Leilani and I talked about because Bush was supposed to be released in the U.S. and then the pandemic happened. So everything got we never really got the chance to to release the film in a in a real way. It was like on this kind of digital on a lot of movie theaters around the U.S. It was on their web pages. You can watch it, but it was like. It's kind of lost uh, in many ways, so we should we should actually we should do something together in New York. You Love would, to a, a book presentation and a film screening and and yeah, talk about it. Would be it. Cool. That'd be
2: wonderful
1: count me in yeah
0: we should see uh, if i'm if they let me into the country i don't know if it's uh, if it's still possible
1: (laughs) and if they let me out of my country
2: (laughs) (laughs) these are strange times to contemplate movement yes yeah yes let's let's look forward to better days yes
0: indeed indeed well thank you so much for for being on pushback talks peter it's it's been amazing and and uh it's cool that we're on the same page and that we keep learning. that's one of the points of doing this podcast also.
2: Well, thank you both for your work. I mean, your tremendous work is, is, is so important. And I really appreciate uh, your digging into my book. And uh, this has just been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank thanks
1: you. so much, Peter. Amazing. Your work is amazing. And, and uh, I'll be relying on it very much going forward. So thanks. And thanks for coming on to Pushback Talks.
0: I think also your work is amazing, Leilani. Agreed. And your
1: work, Frederick. There we go. It's a, We are one. We're using group, Benny the off. off. The group
0: hug, the group hug. Anyway, thank you very much. Thanks, and, guys. And, uh, so how, how, do we, how do we finance our podcast, Leilani? <laughs>
1: <laughs> we are obviously not connected with the right people. Um, yeah, how do we fund our podcast? Well, we don't, but we try to by encouraging people to become patrons, of pushback talks by going to our patreon account so you go to patreon.com and you look for pushback talks and you can give us just a few euros a month makes a huge difference and we like supporters
0: yes being a friend that's right it's it's nice with friends i think that's it's a cool thing that's right anyway thank you for this it was amazing wasn't it
1: fantastic great book great talk and so we see you soon again leilani Looking forward.
0: Enjoy the Canadian winter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Frederick. Thanks, bye. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Or follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and push underscore the film.